0: If you have your Bibles, turn, if you will, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 2. I don't usually announce when I'm preaching on the book of the Revelation because I've discovered over 30 years when I mention I'm preaching on Revelation, all kinds of new people show up, usually wanting to know what I believe about the end times. But I'm not going to address the end times at all today. Uh, So if you came looking to hear about the end times, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, When we look at the... when we talk about churches... In human beings, we have something in common. In both, we have to be concerned about our health. Most of us like to think that we're healthy. That is until we go to the doctor and we have the appointment. Some of you have probably experienced the appointment before. In, In 2007, I went to my doctor and I had the appointment. Mr. Davidelli, your cholesterol numbers are way out of whack. Your lens, liver enzymes, I've never seen them that high. And based on your pancreatic enzymes, you should be doubled over in pain right now, which started for me a year and a half long journey. First, the 12 weeks required that she gave me to lose weight to try to get my cholesterol numbers down. But then another year and a half to try to figure out why all those other numbers were all out of whack. A lot of times in the church, we have the doctor's appointment also. That, that, that time, that event that comes in the face, usually in the face of some sort of turmoil. A pastor leaving, friction within the congregation, changes in the local demographics, or a change in lo- location. All of these can bring about that event that is the church's doctor's appointment. Where the church has to begin to examine itself and, and ask some questions of, of what's going on in our life that's brought us to this place. The good news for the church is that the Lord has provided a paradigm for good health. The scriptures remind us that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And In Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus tells Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is God's uh, gift to man. For it is the body by which we live in him. Two weeks ago, the, the Sunday that you, that you all didn't meet, I was in Birmingham. Actually, actually, I was on my way back from Birmingham. But I had been in Birmingham for what is called the Lampstand Conference. Uh, the Lampstand Conference was a conference on church uh, vitality and revitalization started by Dr. Harry Reeder, uh, the, the former pastor at uh, Briarwood Presbyterian Church used to be called from embers to a flame and i had been through it when in its old uh, form embers to a flame but uh I was there for this conference. It's based upon his book by the same name and, and contains principles on church health and church vitality. And So the whole conference was around that subject, talking about what does a healthy church look like? How can we regain health if we lost the health? How can we grow stronger if we are a healthy church? All of those principles coming in uh, into play. And I'm indebted to Harriet Dr. Reeder because... Uh, for the teachings that, that he gave us, and in this sermon particularly, and I just want to put it out front because I don't want to be accused of plagiarism, I did use his three R's uh, that he he used in his book and in his teaching uh, about uh, about that. So later on, when you hear the three R's, those aren't original to me. Those are original to Dr. Reeder, and actually not even original to Dr. Reeder, as we'll see, they're found in this passage. Over the course of the next few weeks... We're going to take those three R's and break them down. So the, uh, we'll be looking over uh, these church principles and principles for health. And, and I pray that the Lord will do a mighty work through them in your own lives individually, but also in the lives of the congregation. If you haven't already, open your Bible up to the book of the Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, and I pray that as we read this passage, as we begin to talk about this passage, that we will see that we can be a healthy and growing church by applying the principles we find in the passage. Let me say right up front, though, a caveat here. when I'm saying, when I use that phrase, growing church, I'm not speaking numerically. Though that is an evidence of growth, that's not the evidence of growth. A growing church is a healthy church that is growing in their walk with the Lord. Remember the first and greatest commandment, and I'll keep coming back to this over and over and over again. It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And the second is what? To love our neighbor as ourselves. A growing church, a healthy church, is a church that is living that way every day. And so as we'll see over the course of the next few weeks, we can be and are, will be a healthy, growing church as we are growing daily in our walk with him. Well, if you will, let's stand for a moment for the reading of God's holy and inspired word as we find in Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. Actually, I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 20, uh, and then we'll read through verse 7. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right. I started in verse 20 because I wanted us to get that picture and understand. In first in chapter one, uh, John is taken up into this vision. He's living on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled there because of his faith. He's he's on this Isle and he has this vision, and the vision is of Christ. We find out vision of Christ, and we see him standing amidst these lampstands, holding these seven stars, and we're given this description. If you read through these books, you'll see in each, uh, I mean, through these two chapters, two and three, you'll find in each instance the that Jesus gives another description of himself. And in chapter one, he begins with, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him speaking of Jesus, who holds the stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So we see and have him begin with the picture of who's in charge, of who's in authority, right from the very beginning. It says, right to the, to the angel in Ephesus, from him, the one who is in charge, the one who holds those angels in his right hand, who is over them, controls and leads them, and who stands among the lampstands? Who is the foundation and the strength that is of the church? And we see and we pick up in this first verse or so the, this picture of the strengths and the weaknesses of the church. As I mentioned, we we have the picture of Christ now standing amidst seven golden lampstands, and I was I was sharing with Charles earlier today and this morning that. Uh, at the beginning of the lampstand conference, Ike Reeder, Harry, Dr. Reeder's son, gave us a walkthrough of the, the progression throughout the scriptures of the lampstand. We see first being inaugurated in the, in the book of Exodus as they were putting together all the accoutrements of the, of the, the tabernacle was this lampstand that looks like the modern-day menorah. And then as you go through the the Old Testament, you see it it changing in different ways. Where Finally, in the book of Ezekiel, there's a lampstand with a basin that has a never-ending supply of oil that supplies this lampstand to keep it eternally lit. Maybe much similar to what we see when the Olympics come, for instance uh, this summer when the Olympics arrive in Paris, and they they light the torch and it, it stays lit through the entire time that they 're there. This lampstand now stays lit, and the lampstand being the picture of Christ in the church, lit for all eternity, living before us we 're taught in the very first part of this this chapter that they represent the lampstands represent the churches. And it's a broad picture. Those seven churches are mentioned. It's meant to represent all of the churches, that each church has a stand before the Lord. And then we have that phrase here, to the angels uh, of the church, causes uh, commentators some problem. What does that mean? Why would Jesus write to the angels? That doesn't make logical sense. Uh, The word angels... Angelos can also mean messenger. And so most commentators believe that it's written to the leadership of the churches, to the leaders of the churches. And in our case, writing a letter to the church here at Evergreen would be writing to the elders of the church. He's writing to the leadership uh, to, to understand and to know these, these happenings within their church in order to grow and to become stronger the first thing that we we learn right from the very beginning of this passage is that we are not in charge of the church. Not me, not the elders, not even the congregation. Jesus Christ is the one who controls the lampstand. The implication there at the end where he says that he can remove the lampstand, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand, implies that if he can remove it he certainly can put it into place and that he is the one in charge and in control. But as we look at the passage it it shows us reveals to us even more of what Jesus knows about us. Sometimes in the in the life of the church we get so busy being the church that we can forget that Jesus is in our midst. Now, the music and the liturgy of the, of the worship is to help us come back and try to remember that. But during the week, sometimes it's difficult if we don't have all of that to remember that. And we need to be reminded that we are to focus upon the Lord first. Remember the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. To remember that Jesus is with us and he is with the church too many in the ministry today too many in the ministry today seek to do the ministry out of out of an obligation or a personal motivation sometimes driven without the church and sometimes often driven without Jesus Christ i'm amazed as i read about and i talk with other pastors and ministers of varying denominations how many understand the vocation of pastor but don't have an understanding of the calling of the pastor. And so they have a job in which they're the the pastor, but it's just that it's a job and they don't see the connection between the job and the ministry. Here we're told in this this passage about the church, I know your works, your toil and your patience endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Let's look for a moment at at what he knows about us. First, he knows our works. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And this is not talking specifically about our daily vocation. It's not talking about our moon pie store or our our clinic. It's not talking about our schools or our plumbing job or whatever it may be. It's not talking about the bank, but it's talking about our lifestyle. How are we living and serving the Lord each and every day? How are we living out those two greatest commandments? Remember that the second greatest commandment is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, we read in Mark 12, 31. How we live and interact with those around us every day matters to the Lord. We must ask the church today and ask ourselves, how does the community around us view this church? If this church... If Evergreen were to cease to exist today, would the community around us miss it? How are we loving our neighbors? Better yet, in today's isolated world, do we even know our neighbors so that we can love them? I remember back to uh, my first Foray into ministry. uh, Kathy and I moved our 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 young family at that time, our one child, down to Atmore, Alabama, down in LA, Lower Alabama, and uh, we were in a town that was literally split by the train tracks. So there was the north side of town and the south side of town, and they were two different, totally different demographics. When you cross, and it was amazing, on, on my side of the tracks, our side of the tracks, uh, there were lots of houses, lots of neighbors, but you never saw anybody out. You didn't see them at the fence. You didn't see them out interacting. You rarely saw kids, and this was even before computers. You, know, you, didn't, you rarely saw interaction. But you go just a couple hundred yards further, and you cross over the train tracks into the other neighborhoods, And there were people on every porch, and they were standing out by the fences, and they they were interacting. There were people on the corners and in the little markets, and, and you saw all kinds of interaction going on. The neighbors knew the neighbors. They knew everybody there. Our culture is so changed today. One of the things that maybe many of us grew up with was on Sunday afternoons. After church, we would go over to to grandparents or to the neighbors or whatnot, and we'd sit on the porch, and you would have coffee, and you'd have a dessert, and you'd, you'd sit, and you would interact, and you'd, you, you knew everybody. And our, our world is just not like that. But because the world is not like that doesn't mean that the church should not be like that. A healthy church is concerned for the community around them and seeks to love them. But to be able to seek to love them, you first have to get to know them. And Jesus reminds us that he knows our works. Are we getting to know and love the community around us? Secondly, he knows our practice. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Here, the first part, the works, the Speaks to how we interact with those outside, those around us. Here speaks to how we interact with those within the church. Paul warned the leadership in Acts chapter 20. And if you're not familiar with that, Paul was traveling back to Jerusalem. He stops at Miletus, a coastal town. And he calls the elders of Ephesus to come to him. A remarkable thing about Ephesus is the line of pastors that they had. Paul planted the church. He then later sent Timothy, and then John, the apostle John, was one of their pastors too. So Paul, after he had planted this church, Timothy was now being sent as the young minister. He calls them all to him, and we read in chapter 20, verses 28 and through 30, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This was Paul speaking to the leadership of the church. Years, possibly even decades before John has this vision of Jesus writing to the leaders of the church. And what we see is the very same concern there for the health of the church. The toughest problem for the church, toughest problems for the church, often come from inside the church. In this past year, we've seen many prominent churches and, and pastors split and fail, including you all have been part of that. Not from, and the pressures that have come have not been pressures from outside. This wasn't external persecution. This was problems from within, pressures from within that brought about that heartache and that pain. Paul has tasked the elders to care for the church, to protect the church, to oversee the church. And brothers and sisters, it's not an easy task. I will confirm on their behalf, and they can correct me later if I'm wrong, but there's not one of them that was prepared to be an elder and to care for the whole of the body of the church 24-7. God called them to that. They responded to that. And for many an elder in this church and others, it's an on-the-job training type of a situation where they're learning as they go. It's not an easy task, but it's a necessary task for the church's life and health. So one of the greatest things that you can do as members of the church is to be praying for the elders by name, by specificities. Be fellowshipping with the body of Christ, your church. And do not allow any false teaching, any backbiting, any gossip to be part of this body. It takes a concerted effort, not just from the elders, but from every single one of us. For Paul knows our work, he knows our, our toil, but he also knows our stamina. Verse 3 we read, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This verse speaks to how we carry ourselves daily as a congregation, as a people of God. This period in the life of this church will be different and harder than anything most of you have ever experienced before. I'll be very blunt at the moment. In the PCA right now, while we have more teaching elders than we have churches... We have fewer teaching elders who want the positions of authority than we have churches. And so when I first began in the ministry, the average process of finding a pastor for a church took 16 to 18 months. We're now being told that the average process will take two to three years to to work through that. That's a time of patient enduring that you guys will have to deal with that you will have to live with. Now, that's not to say that God can't raise somebody up today. He certainly can. And in some sense, or instances, he does that. But as an average, it takes a while. And you will have to patiently wait through that. And how you carry yourselves during that period will determine the health of the church when that pastor arrives. I can assure you of this. God has a man for you. Who that man is is yet to be determined. So we must wait and pray to that end and pray specifically for him. As you move forward, there will be days where you will say, this is taking forever. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how we're going to make it. But press on toward that finish line. I love the picture that Paul presents for us in Philippians 3 where he writes, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Paul wasn't pressing forward or pressing on in order to get the pastor. He wasn't even pressing on in order to endure the day. He was pressing on in order to glorify God, to meet that first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. We press on to achieve that goal each day for the glory of God. And remember that the church is a means of grace in your journey of faith. It's not the end of your journey. It's a tool in the tool belt of our journey. So now let's address the three R's of a healthy church. Look back at the passage, verse 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Lord now brings out the negative that's found in the church that, that needs to be overcome. And I believe he starts with the church at Ephesus because the church at Ephesus, in my, in my understanding and in, in my interpretation of this passage, represents the whole of the church. It, was, it, it represents us, our church, this congregation, any congregation we've been in. If you read through this passage, you see similarities probably with every church you've ever attended. And one of the greatest dangers that exists in any congregation is the abandonment, the losing of the first love. Which naturally raises the question, what is this first love? And I've said it already three or four times. I'll say it again. When... Jesus was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, Matthew twenty two thirty six 36 through 38. We're to love the Lord with all we have, all that we are. A huge danger in any congregation is that we begin to put the wrong things first. The ministry, the programs, the music, the liturgy, counseling, the leadership, the search committee, all of these things can become little idols in our lives and in the life of the church that we soon forget the real reason, the real purpose of our being is to love the Lord and to serve him. Sadly, I have known and been a part actually of two different churches that have split over a window unit AC. We laugh because it's almost impossible to believe that people could get so frustrated with each other over a window unit that they would be willing to part ways. And I can tell you that the first of those churches, even today, almost 50 years later, has still not set reconciliation over that. The other church no longer exists. Their lampstand was taken away. In the book, Ten Most Common Mistakes Made by a New Church Starts, the very first chapter addresses another problem that churches often have. uh, I'll, I'll state it, and then let me clarify a little bit. And that is the neglecting The Great Commandment in pursuit of the Great Commission. Neglecting the Great Commandment in pursuit of the Great Commission. And we'll see in coming weeks that evangelism is necessary for a healthy church. But whenever evangelism and the Great Commission becomes the primary drive of the church, and you've forgotten Christ and you've forgotten to live for the glory of the Lord, you've put the wrong thing first. You cannot share your faith if you don't first love your neighbor. And you cannot love your neighbor if you don't first love the Lord. Let us not make that mistake. Let us not fall to that. Never, never put the external aspects of our ministry ahead of the internal heart of our ministry of Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus tell us to do at this point? Well, first he tells us the first of our three R's. Remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. This is only a partial reference to our historical past. But we're now to remember what John Newton wrote about in his brilliant song, Amazing Grace. I once was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We're to return back to that first great commandment and to our love for Christ and remember why we were created, whose we are, and why we are. We were created for the glory of God to be His for all eternity. We fell from there. Remember from where we have fallen. We have fallen from the presence of the Almighty, and thus we are to remember that, that we were created to be His. And thus, that is why Jesus was able to say, this is the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's why we were created. The only love with eternal ramifications, the love in which there is no greater love than that was seen in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're to remember. That phrase, remember the Lord, is prominent throughout Scripture. I'm not going to read all the passages, but here's just a few where we're encouraged to remember the Lord. Exodus 13, 3. Leviticus 26, 45. Numbers 15.39, Deuteronomy 5.15, Psalm 22.27, Psalms 77.11, Revelation 2 uh, and verse 5. And many more speak of our remembering the works of God in our lives and in our body. Remember what God has done. It's easy in a church that is dealing with with trials to remember all the bad things that have happened. But when you're called to remember the Lord, you're not being called to remember the bad things. You're being called to remember the ways that God has worked and the way that God is at work among you. How did the Lord save you? How did he redeem your life? What brought you to this church family in the first place? Remember that. How has the Lord grown you in your faith since you've been here? Remember that. How are you seeing God at work each day? Remember that. Remind yourself of that. If we don't remember the good works of God, we'll only think about the hardships of our life and our trial. And we'll lose sight of what God is doing. And has done. Each time you meet, I encourage you to begin with this question. How have you seen the Lord at work in your life this week? It's meant to cause you to remember. To think back. Now I could tell you elders, the first time you ask that question in a meeting, you're going to get stone silence. Give them time. After a while, after, just continue to ask that question. Ladies in your ladies group and in your youth group and every group, ask that question. And eventually, people will start to come. You know, this week I was doing such and such, and I saw God working in such a marvelous way. I've never even noticed it before. But you will suddenly start finding yourselves aware and seeing God working in ways you hadn't before. So remember the second R here is repent. There's this hilarious uh, scene in an old Bob Newhart sh- show, and and you know, there were some comedians back in the days, in the 70s, there were a couple guys, Bob Newhart, Tim Conway, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Winters. You know, whenever you saw them, at least for me, whenever they came on Johnny Carson or came on some show, I started laughing with, they didn't have to say a word. You just knew whatever they said was going to be funny. Anyways, in this Bob Newhart show, he goes into his office. And if you remember, this particular Bob Newhart show was the one where he was a psychologist. And he, he goes into his office, and this lady comes in, uh, and he tells her that uh, uh, this is going to cost you $5. She gives him a queer, uh, quizzical look, and she says, okay. And she gives him $5. He said, and it'll only take five minutes. And again, she's got this quizzical look and she, she says, okay. And she gives him the $5. He says, all right, tell me what's wrong. And she begins to share all these horrible things going on in her life. While Bob is listening intently to her and he lets her go for about two or three minutes. And then finally he says, okay, I can help you with just three words. She says, you can, what is that? And he leans forward to her and he goes, Just stop it! Jesus here is is telling us the same thing. When you lose your focus on the Lord, just stop it. Confess your failure. Stop doing it and turn back to the Lord. That is the essence of repentance. You miss any part of this and you haven't repented, you might be apologizing, Or you might be taking a break from your behavior, but you haven't repented. You have to stop it, admit it, turn from it, and turn back to remembering and walking with God. Admit you're wrong and turn back. It's not rocket science. It's simple faith. So we have to do that. Now, that may call for us as a congregation, for you as a congregation, to take a step back and ask yourself some questions. The the first and foremost being, is there something that we, as a people, need to repent of? I pastored a church. For 17 years, prior to our pastoring that church, a previous pastor had been indicted on child abuse charges. During the entirety of our ministry, we were dealing with the ramifications of something that had happened 20 years, or actually 11 years, before we even arrived on the scene. We had people within the community who identified us as that church. Young people who were now parents who would ask the question, did ask me one time, if I bring my children to your church, what guarantee do I have that nothing will happen to them? When I talked to the elders about the possibility of us making a public statement of repentance to the community, the response I got was, what do we have to repent of? We didn't do it. I fear that the Lord may be in the process of removing the lampstand. There may be something, and I don't know, that we as a congregation may have to discuss and say, do we need to repent of this? I know for every one of us in here that there is something that each of us needs to repent of. And to be a healthy church, we must begin there and just stop doing it and confess it and turn our lives back to that greatest commandment, which is the third of the R's to recover or return Return to the Lord. Return to that first love. Return to a focus upon God. Our lives today are bombarded with distractions. Even the church is bombarded with distractions. It is easy to lose focus and direction. But it is tough work to get it back on track. you probably will have to make a concerted effort daily to recover faith and focus. That doesn't mean you're not a believer. That means you're a true believer seeking to grow in your walk. So I ask you, are you you in the Word daily? Are you praying daily? What is it that's distracting you on a daily basis? Do you find you're watching too much television? Or reading too many of the wrong things? Endlessly, mindlessly surfing the internet? Who are you surrounding yourself with on a daily basis? I encourage you to wrestle through these questions every day. What is it? It is leading me away from Christ. What do I need to lead me toward Christ? Brothers and sisters, you're not alone in these struggles. I face them. You face them. Everybody in this room is facing them. Paul, the great apostle, writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Here's the greatest apostle in in history, we we might could argue. Who's wrestling with the daily art of recovery. The daily art of reconciliation to the Lord. I know what I need to do, but in my own strength... I lack the means, the ability to carry it out. You can't do it yourself. You can only do it through the power of the Lord at work in you. And so recover, return, reconcile to those first two great commandments. Jesus gives an interesting promise to the healthy church beginning with the the one thing that, uh, 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 another commendation that he has for them. Look at verses 6 and 7. Yet this you have. Here's this commendation. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, let's close by by briefly looking at this commendation and the promise of these final passages. I'm not going to spend the time doing a deep dive into the Nicolaitans, uh, just simply to say they were a group of false teachers who were giving the Turkish thumb uh, in in many of the leading uh, churches in the area problems with their false teachings on sensuality and on idols. The church... At Ephesus, here is being commended for realizing that they were false teachers, and for fending them off, for stating that they were false and leading people astray, just as Paul had predicted when he brought called the uh, uh, the leaders to Miletus. I think the one thing we can note is that these teachers were in the church; they were not from outside of the church. And so, as as members of the church. As elders, but as lay folks also, your spiritual antenna should always be going. You should have your little radars going every time there's a message up here. Mine or anybody else's. And if you hear something that's false, if you hear something that causes a question, you raise the questions. For that's the commendation given to to the church at Ephesus, is that the questions came up. It became obvious to some, and so they began to re- ask the questions and realize these guys are not teaching the gospel. And they did, they shut them down and said, Get out of our body, get away from us. But look at the great promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, to the one who endures, to the one who makes it through, That the church that, be, to, that lives that healthy life, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. It's a great picture for us of the fullness of our salvation. Man was created and placed in the garden and told he could eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And now we're told in that final day we will be granted the privilege of eating from the tree from which we were barred. The fullness of our salvation to be in the presence of the Almighty for all eternity. To say that our salvation just saves us from the penalty of sin is incomplete. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the picture there is of the fullness of our salvation. And that we are recreated to what we were originally created to be. In the presence of the Almighty for all eternity. We are made new by our faith in Christ In our living a new life looking forward to the world to come. There we will dwell in Christ for all eternity and be able to eat from the tree that, as I mentioned, was forbidden from the first of creation. For all eternity we will know true life. This is why the health of our body is so important. The church is to be the representation of the life we are to live for all eternity. For the community to see that if we heed these words of Christ, we can live and know the fullness of life found in Jesus Christ. How? Through the church. So that as we seek to love the Lord with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, they will then see the bigger picture of salvation. Not just hear the words, you could be saved from your sin, but why do we want to be saved from our sin? What is the benefit of that salvation from our sin? Because we, the church, then will live for eternity with Christ the King. We will be in His presence, and He will be our light. So we seek to be a healthy church, that we can be Christ's kingdom here on earth today. So are you ready for that journey? As we come to the table in just a moment, we're reminded of the price Christ paid that we could walk that journey with him and live it for all eternity. As he gave himself, his body broken and his blood shed He then rose again and we could have life and have it eternally. And as we come to the table, we celebrate that great gift that he has given to us. While the bread will be the bread and the cup will be the cup, by faith we will receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we heard earlier in the service, we will be united with him for all eternity. That is what we celebrate. And so let us Begin to celebrate. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given for us a paradigm to be a healthy body for your glory. We thank you, O Lord, that you've given us the strength to do so through the power of your spirit. And Lord, may we now take time to set our eyes upon you. To see the great gift you've given us through the giving of your body and blood for us. Your resurrection giving us life. And Lord, as we take these elements, may we be reminded of the great grace and mercy you bestow on us each day. Father, we thank you and we praise you now. Father, if there's anyone present today who does not know you, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would come to you in faith. They would find their heart renewed and revived. And Father, that they would profess you as Lord and receive the life that you have to offer them. For those of us who do know you, O Lord, may we set our eyes upon you and love you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and strength. For your glory in this day and in the kingdom to come, we pray. Amen. Amen.